0: This is the Wally and Mathot Show, powered by Barhaven Ford. Now here are your hosts, Brent Wallace and Mark Mathot. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 27 of the Wally and Mathot Show, powered by Barhaven Ford. I'm Brent Wallace. He's Mark Mathot, also known as citizen number one. And that is, if you are around and you're going to litter, Mark Mathot is going to find you.
1: How do, how do I follow that up? I mean, he's right, though. I will I will jump all over you. I don't care if I'm in traffic. I'm going to address the issue. That's right. So just be forewarned.
0: All right. Uh, by the way, as you can tell, we are at Barhaven Ford. We decided to pick up and bring the show on the road. We are together, but separate. Uh, Meth is over there, and I'm over here keeping our social distance. However, we just wanted to show you the Roush-inspired vehicles here at Barhaven Ford. They will customize them for you. Uh, right behind me, this blue... Mustang is a supercharger engine. It's fantastic. You should take it for a test drive if you can. And, um, this building still has that new car smell, which I love. Yeah,
1: (laughs) it's got a new car smell and a loud echo. So we're trying to make this work here. I really am a huge fan of this Roush inspired F-150. I might steal this off the lot today. I know it's closed here. So we'll have to do (laughs) a little homework and scout things out while we're talking. I'm sure they'll never
0: notice. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, by the way, this actually is going to lead to perhaps us taking the show on the road more often and maybe even leading to us doing some live shows down the road. We will keep you informed of that. It may be coming sooner than you think. Also, um, today in the Whitewater chat, we have a superstar guest, the fourth winningest coach of all time and someone I didn't tell Matt about before we did the interview. It's Ken Hitchcock, Matt.
1: Yeah, and, and, and just a little warning for those that are watching the show, you can actually see the sweat Accumulate immediately when I noticed that it was Ken Hitchcock, only because I have a great deal of respect for him, and he still terrifies me. I can't believe I'm saying this. I'm a 36 year old man. Ken Hitchcock scares the crap out of me still, and uh, you can see it in the interview.
0: It's so good. The interview was fantastic, and it was really it was. good to see him because you two. Uh, he's coached you three different occasions, so I, I just yeah. I wanted to bring him on and see your reaction to finally see. Uh, A long time friend of yours. And I guess he's a terrifying long time friend. Um, Also, coming up in Trivial Trivia, we're going to uh, present you a Gong Show sauce-off kit. Plus, we have a gift package from Bonesaw Sauce. Sauce. Uh, Lots of different things. And so today we decided we're going to mix things up and we're not going to do headlines per se. We just got some conversations we got to get through. And uh, eventually we're going to get quickly to the Ken Hitchcock interview because it is so good. And when you can hear him talk about throwing shoes at Lindy Ruff, you know it's a good interview. Uh, So first... Uh, one thing we want to bring up and that is uh, meth and you played for ken hitchcock at the world championships they are in the gold medal game and the fact that they are even there to have this conversation is phenomenal when you consider no t- team canada has started zero and three at the world championships
1: yeah I, I, and i mean i was i had the pleasure of covering that round robin and after those first three games and them taking losses on all of them, i think a lot of us were concerned as canadian fans and uh they were able to bring in some players in particular, Andrew Mangiapane, and obviously ended up just going undefeated ever since he came in. And I think it was more of an opportunity for the team to build a little confidence as it goes. And Rod Black had a good quote for me at the start of the tournament. He goes, just wait, cream always rises to the top. And he was right. They're in a great spot now. And oddly enough, fighting for that gold medal against the finished team. Uh, and
0: as we go from the present, we'll now talk about the future. And that is, you know, the, we just saw the OHL, uh, building off the draft and it made lots of headlines. One, because of so many kids being drafted in the OHL and seeing their futures. But of course, for Curry, who was the first female drafted in the OHL, the 16-year-old going to the Sarnia Sting. There's been a lot of reaction to it, but one is you have to be positive and you have to be excited for this young lady who now gets a chance to actually make it an OHL team. And I just want to point out They aren't drafting her just because they're drafting her because they think that she can play. And I think that that needs to be pointed out. They're not just throwing out a draft pick just to say we did it. They believe in this player and as as they should, she's put up fantastic numbers.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think, I mean, I knew nothing about her. And then I saw some of the clips uh, during the game the other night, Ron McLean was interviewing her and they showed a little highlight reel pack of her games playing triple A with boys. She looks great. Her lateral movement was fantastic. She looks strong, really quick. So Good for her. It's a fantastic story, and uh, we're wishing Tay Curry all the best. Uh,
0: why don't you tell me about your OHL draft? Do you remember it?
1: <laughs> Vaguely. I was young, man. <laughs> I can remember um, being severely behind as far as development goes. You know, I mean, I am I was a late bloomer, so uh, naturally I was a six-round pick in the OHL draft, and the lead-up to it was... It's pretty stressful, right? You're young, you've got these high expectations, you don't know where you're going to land. And I happen to be in probably one of the deepest drafts of all time. Um, That 2003 group at the NHL draft would be proof of it if you go back and look at all the numbers. But yeah, so I ended up going very late to London, but it ended up being the best thing that ever happened to me. And I'm very grateful that I got drafted by them. Uh, well, Matt, it seemed to work out pretty well for you. So let's let's move on. There was a, something that Rod Brindamore
0: said the other day in the Carolina press conference because uh, they're being torched on the power play. And so he's, you know, you got to stay out of the box. You can't take penalties. But you're going to take penalties. It made it seem like you are in trouble if you take a penalty and I'm not going to be happy with you. Like, what is the message he's sending to his teammates?
1: Well, I, I think it's pretty obvious in that you're playing against one of the best power plays in the National Hockey League. And if you're taking more than, you know, four minors in a game, there's a good chance they're going to get at least one goal on those four uh, opportunities. So I, I'm, I've been known to saying that in the room. I preached that as well when I played as far as just staying out of the box, particularly against highly offensive groups. And I think, you know, as a player, you know not to take a penalty. But when a coach puts a little more emphasis on that when, by a comment prior to the game, I think it's more just the dumb ones, you know, the offensive zone holds sticking interference calls that are completely avoidable with hard work. And I think by, by, by Rod putting a little emphasis on that, it's like, okay, we can kill and afford to kill penalties that are taken in the D zone. Those are typically good penalties, if you will, but offensive zone stuff eliminate that. And when you add that into the player's psyche, it's almost kind of like this subconscious thing when you're on the ice, I'm not taking a penalty in that offensive zone. Uh, I, have you played golf yet this year, by the way? I haven't gone out once. So, so I got to go out yesterday, my kid
0: asked me to take him out. I was like, okay, let's go. So our friends at Edgewood links, Edgewood links hooked me up. Uh, and so before we got there, I remembered I had a bunch of, uh, TSN golf balls. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm not going to use these anymore. So I said, here, you can take them out and you can hit them around. And anyway, we, we both of us decided we could lose them pretty quickly because we weren't very good at playing. So I, I made a tweet about it and it seemed to have caught some attention and it's not what I meant. I I knew that they were going to get lost. I'm just like, here, you can use these. We're not probably going to play with these again. But it did make me think back to, uh, I forget what it was. It was like Hockey Canada was having its annual golf tournament and it was in Ottawa that year. And I got a call from the president's executive assistant and she says, listen, um, by the president of TSN, I mean, Stu Johnson is coming to town. He wants you to golf with him, and I'm. And Stu's a very nice man. I have all the respect and both for him. So, I'm terrified because I hadn't played golf in like ten years. So I go out buy all new sticks, <laughs> all new uh, all gear. I'm all new shorts, shirt, everything. I'm looking great. So then I get the call. He's going to be late. So he shows up halfway through. It's a rainy day. I remember that anyway. He hands me a dozen golf balls and goes, and they're all marked with TSN on He Goes, this is your severance package at the time. <laughs> I laughed and thought it was a pretty good story. When I look back at it now, it hurts my feelings. Um, yeah, you, yeah. but it's funny. Like and I I really I, it was just funny. I just had some golf balls to get around the track with and they have them okay. in TSM. Yeah. So you've
1: cleared you've cleared up the tweet. Yeah. It was not uh, malicious at all.
0: No, it's hey, listen, what am I gonna do with these? I can't play them every time I go out and play with a bunch of people, They're like, why are you using these? So I just thought oh, I'd man. get rid of them.
1: It's no different than me playing with a Columbus, Columbus Blue Jackets ball or something. It's a team that traded me away, but I'll still use their merchandise. I don't <laughs> mind. See, well, that's like, I still have some stuff that it's I, like,
0: I got luggage and everything. What am I going to do? just throw it out? So I just no, have, you can right? use it. But you here's the that, thing, right? you worked there for 25 years. I am not a very good golfer. So it didn't take me long to lose these is my point. Like I, they were, I was spraying them everywhere. So my kid is no better. He really comes by it naturally. Uh, let's move on. Finally is uh, big Brown? Are you a horse racing guy? Like when I watched the Belmont stakes, there, do you get it? Like there was a bunch I of mean, senators, Mark stones, uh, girlfriend, or now fiance and John Gabriel yeah. Pajot And there's yeah, somebody else. They're sure. all big into horses at the same they time. Ride and,
1: and I have a, we have a, we're big, we're pretty big into two. I mean, my wife and I love horses and I taught myself how to ride 10 years ago. I went to a farm outside of Ottawa just to learn, just to have a new skill. And we, we rent out on our property outside of Ottawa, like uh, somebody's renting it off of us and they have a horse rescue on the property. So we have about 25 horses that graze on our pasture and it's great. It takes care of the uh, the area. Everything looks good and well manicured. But more importantly, I love being around them. I think they're beautiful animals. I don't really follow the racing a lot. I watched the Belmont Stakes on Saturday. thought it was really exciting. But other than that, it's not like I'm some crazy horse nut. So it... I covered a Belmont stakes
0: once it was 2008 and big Brown was going to go for the triple crown and he had decimated yep. the field in the Preakness and in the Kentucky Derby. So I've never been there before. I don't know anything about horse racing, but I will say one of the earlier days when Eugene Melnick and I were actually getting along and I called him and he's a huge horse racing guy. And at the Belmont stakes, he had actually helped to build a, uh, it's called Anna's house at the back for the track workers, uh, children. It was almost like a daycare for them so they could send them there. So, He's done a lot of stuff at the Belmont stakes or at the Belmont park. So I call him and he takes me through and sets me up beautifully for covering horse racing. So I get there and I've never, big Brown was the biggest rock star I had seen in a long time. They have got all this sponsorship money around him. And at the end of it, he was being um, walked by Hooters girls. Like it it was a, (laughs) it was a spectacle I've never seen before. And so there was so much attention surrounding this, like, I can nice. always remember there was cameras everywhere and you could hear like a photographer, like, hey, Big Brown. And he would turn and I swear to God, he knew he was on camera. There'd be like this smile. <laughs> they, it was phenomenal. I'll never forget it. So we cover the race in one of the biggest buildings I've ever seen in my life. It holds 120,000 people and it's all just on one side. So it's this massive complex. I'm in the press box getting ready to cover this race. There is betting machines in the press box i always, i bet on big Brown to win only because i spent two bucks on a ticket i didn't know at the time he had a cracked hoof and probably didn't stand a chance of winning this race but i just wanted a ticket just to say i did it um mm-hmm. but i'll never forget covering this triple crown race Anyway, he ended up becoming the first favorite never to finish the race uh, because of a shoe issue uh but a phenomenal thing to cover and it was just neat to watch and you see how this horse racing thing plays out because the belmont is such a long track the favorites from the Kentucky and stuff, not necessarily hold on to run this whole mile and a half track.
1: Yeah. And it's a fun race. Like yesterday was awesome. And it was, it was pretty tight and then essential quality. Finally, I think wins after that we catches up at that second halfway point and then takes it, as you mentioned, it's such a long race. You have time to go grab a coffee and come back and they're still (laughs) running. So, but it's a lot of fun and I encourage people to check it out. Yeah, it's neat. All right. Um,
0: we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to have uh, Ken Hitchcock stop by in the Whitewater chat. Don't forget, uh, you still use that Wally thought 15% off coupon code. Also, get yes. home delivery. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, also, listen, if you haven't tried it, the Dawn Patrol, the tangerine infused stuff, is amazing. And it's my summer beer choice. Um, and of course, our good friends at uh, BEI, once again, bringing you uh, all the latest news from the Bonisher Excavating Inc., uh, helping to shape the Ottawa Valley. When we return, you're going to see Ken Hitchcock meeting Mark Mathot for the first time in decades. Uh, well, maybe not decades. Uh, <laughs> you're watching the Wally Mathot Show, powered by Bar Haven Ford. Welcome back to the Walling Mathot Show, powered by Bar Haven Ford. Listen, we've talked an awful lot with the BFC Roush inspired custom vehicles. These are them. This is the 5-liter Mustang supercharged engine, all decked in a roush gear. This thing will hum down the highway. Also, the Ranger and the F-150. Listen, come down to 555 dealership drive in Barhaven. They will customize these any which way you want. Come see the largest inventory in Ottawa. And now, here with the Whitewater Chat is our interview with Ken Hitchcock. All right, welcome back to the chat presented by whitewaterbeer.ca. Now, Matt, this is a guy that you don't know who's coming on but it's someone that you've had a long history with so without further ado here
1: is today's guest hi guys uh, <laughs> that is amazing Man, oh, i'm doing well how are you doing
2: i'm good i'm good,
1: good where are you good. living these days i'm in ottawa in uh, just outside of ottawa yeah so i'm here trying to fill my days with work I'm, I'm a boy. yeah you golfing yeah, I, uh, I just got
2: into Kelowna. I, I got a place in Kelowna and I got a place in California. And I, uh, I play four times a week in California. And uh, it's, uh, I'm, I'm a member of the golf course. I'm a, I'm a 10 now method. I'm the worst player at the golf course. Like there's so many, a <laughs> bunch of X tour guys and it's an yeah. amazing place. So
1: Nice. I, well, you're better than I am.
2: Yeah, I enjoy it. And I, I do a lot of work with the American League guys in Bakersfield so Woody and his staff there I'm, I'm in constant contact with them and then I work with Ken on kind of the personnel of our team and trades free agency and stuff like that I work kind of I don't work with the big club per se but yeah. Ken and I do a lot of work together you know on personnel and he sends me on the wild goose chases looking at players so
1: That's a nice role though, right? Like it just takes a little less pressure off you. Now you can kind of do it at your own pace and obviously huge for those players or you're even involved with them. So that's, that's gotta be a nice treat for them too.
2: Yeah. I, I, uh, I, I I always want, I'll never stop being a coach, Beth, but I know know that. And the grind for me uh, after a while, it just starts to get to you. Like when you're waking up and you're not sure what hotel you're in and it just starts. And it's, it you know I, I'm on the edge of it, but I'm 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 not grinding it out every day, and the hours just start to wear on you after a while. And I just I felt you know I had I had a lot of chances in the last 12 months to go back in, but I just it's not in me, and I, I don't think I could do the work that you need to do to be successful.
1: Yeah, and and I see that. I mean, you're because <laughs> I've played with you in Columbus, played with you for in Dallas. You are meticulous and you work your nuts off. So I can only imagine how exhausting that would be. So good for you. Glad to yeah. hear it. I wish, I wish I could golf half as much as you are, though. I unfortunately can't do that right now.
2: <laughs> well, plus the weather is not conducive to playing in the middle of winter unless you can play ice golf there.
1: So. <laughs> so how did how did Wally, did Wally reach out to you? Yeah. Yeah, uh... he said,
2: come on. He said, I'm not going to let Meth know it. And I said, As long, if meth's on, I'm on.
0: So,
1: Right on. Good man. Well, Wally, you got me there, brother. <laughs> he didn't even
0: hesitate, which was, I'm like, well, I was so impressed. So, Ken, I, I appreciate Good. you coming on. This is a big deal. Because, uh, and you forgot one other time that Ken coached you, and that's the 2011 World Championships.
1: Yep, yep. And that's so, true. I think I was suspended in that tournament, though, I think, uh, for the quarters, right? Was that? Yeah. I can't remember now. Yeah. Anyway, it happens. But, yeah, that was a fun, fun time. How did you so, Ken? How did you guys lose that
0: tournament with the team that you had? When I looked, like the lineup that you guys put on the ice was phenomenal at a world championship, and I just you, we went into the quarterfinals and lost two one to Russia, um, and that was a tough one because you guys looked like a really good team. Yeah, they loaded
2: up about a week before the quarters, and they brought in six, seven top guys and kind of swung the difference. I, the, the goaltender was unbelievable, but their team was real good too. they had a hell of a team also and we knew whoever was going to win that game was going to play in the finals there we thought they would and um, but they they flew in about six or seven guys brent and and kind of uh, they were all top top end guys and and you knew that the the pendulum was going to swing then
1: pitch uh, do you remember the the, the atmosphere it, that was in Belarus for that game right I think yeah was it? That, that was wild the crowd and and then you had like Ovechkin and, and all the guys that come in late like you just mentioned like and not and we 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 hung in there obviously but it was such a huge advantage for them well and I remember
2: the game was really close but it didn't feel close we never had the damn puck
1: yeah. and they
2: they, they yeah. controlled play and like they they brought in and they had brought him in on a special plane and they were there they had I, I think they played one game and, and, and then got in the quarterfinals, but yeah. they, they changed they changed it big time. They changed the, the the landscape when they all when he got all those guys to come in.
0: Okay, so what difference was Meth as a player when you had him in Columbus to when you got him in Dallas? And did he like That's how much not, of was, your gray hair is related to Mark Mathot's play?
1: i Hitch, before you go in there, <laughs> I just want to add that it's not a fair question for Hitch i had one leg by the time i got to dallas unfortunately so i couldn't skate i just wanted to add that in there first
2: well i think the thing that i learned with Meth was that if he just played uh and you just iced the lineup and put him out there on a regular rotation he was a good player but meth was a great player when you gave him a job when he had a specific title uh and he had a job to do against certain opposition He was dialed in, it dialed in the team. And that's the lesson I learned from Columbus was, and that's why I, when I went there into Dallas, it was too bad that meth was so banged up because I knew that he, he allowed us some matchups that were really advantageous. If he could have, you know, played, he was banged up the whole year, but uh, he was one of those guys given a task, a shutdown task. uh, It completely eliminated the opposition and, and, and and it was really effective. I we really found it out in in Columbus, and Mark was really effective because we were uh, we were a, a team that was limited in Columbus, but we had to shut down key players on the other team. And Meth had a, a he meth. I was looking it up. He, he played a lot of minutes on a shutdown role, which is really really taxi. Yeah.
0: So. Uh... He, your name has come up in a few episodes about how coaches relate to players. And I'm just, did you two ever get into it much?
2: Uh, you know, I think like everything else. And I think that's the one thing that's missing at times, Brad, because one of the reasons that, that you you push players as a coach, and this is what the general population doesn't really understand. One of the reasons that you push players is because you really believe in them. And sometimes we don't express that as well as we should as coaches, but, but I, I, I pushed Meth because I really believed in what he could bring to a team and how it could impact the game. I, I felt that the way our team was built in Columbus, if I could get Mark to embrace a role, and Mark even had that role in junior, uh, so he knew what it, it looked and smelled like, but I felt if we could get Mark to really buy into those details, it would force other guys to follow suit. And that's exactly what happened.
1: Yeah. And, and hitch hitch always had this way of like, like challenging you and he, he would call you out on it. And I'd seen him do it. We joke about it on the show. Cause hitch, I talk a lot about you on the show and, <laughs> and it was his way of engaging with players. So like, and it could have been anybody, it could have been a veteran. It could have been a guy like, remember like Mal Holtra or anybody that may have not been playing up to par and hitch would call him out on the bench and it would fire that player up. And sometimes he barked back at Hitch, but Hitch loved that. Like he wanted to the engagement because it, it brought the player and it woke him up. And so, that sure, shit, the next shift that player goes out there and he's running around like he's on the gas and he's playing lights out. And that's – some players don't really respond well to that anymore. I feel like it's changing. Obviously, yeah. now the landscape's different, right, Hitch? But yeah. but at that time, those players, like we almost enjoyed that. Like it would get you engaged and it would fire you up. That was my takeaway anyway, I don't,
2: well, I, I really felt like when I was in Columbus, Mark and Manny were the pulse of the team. And I felt that I had to get Mark that that role and we had to we had to find that matchup, even if we were on the road, we had to find that matchup. And and Manny and we we we've had long emotional talks about this, Manny and I, and in a really good way. I, I felt that he he was an emotional leader. And he had to stop being an apologist for the team. He had to, he had to start holding guys to a higher standard. And so I got mad at him, not because of his play, but because he was apologizing to a player, uh, and, and kind of consoling the player when the player wasn't given near the effort. So I got after him and it created that, that moment in his career where things changed for him. He took that role for the rest of his life seriously, but I really believed in him. And that's why I, I I really approached him about doing this. And when he wasn't buying in, I went after him. And I knew that if I could get him to buy in our team, we were, we were uh, you know, we were limited, but I felt like we could accomplish and get in the playoffs and be a hard team to play against. If, if Mark could lead it on the back, And Manny could leave it on the front.
0: Was there one player which you would bark at that would give it right? Like was the, I guess the hardest at giving it back to you or just didn't like it. So he really let you know.
2: Oh, I think there's a few guys. I I think it's not so much the barking, it's the staring. And I think that sometimes, (laughs) sometimes as a coach, you get mad at a guy and you're watching him, your eyes are burning and, um, I I remember uh, Jamie Lagenberger didn't like that at all. You know, he he knew he would made mistakes, and he didn't like if I looked him down. And and I I, I think that um, you know the game is way more sensitive now and stuff like that. But I think sometimes it's not so much the barking because I I never took it personally. I never took I never took criticism personally. I looked at criticism or critiquing as a way to get better. And I never looked at the feedback back from the player personally. I moved on that day or the next day. But some players, they didn't like when you stared them down. And so you had to be really careful, at, even if it was a mistake, looking at the time clock. Or now you can look at your iPad or you can look down and and there's a replay on the bench on, at your feet. And so there's there's other vehicles. But in those days, there was no other vehicle. And I some players didn't react very good to that.
0: Are you a video type guy? Like, would you have had the iPad out on the bench? I know you did a lot with Hockey Canada, I think, on video. But if you were a head coach, would you be in favor of the iPads? No, Brent, I'm, I'm a feel
2: guy. I, I don't like where it's going. Um, we, even when I was coaching later and analytics were a big part of it, I scaled the analytics to, to cover certain areas that only I had. And I, I, I worked a deal out with the analytics company to, to put together the package that was specific for the terminology that I wanted to use with the players, not all the information that you get bludgeoned with now. I, I really feel like a field part of coaching is the fun part. And, and to me, it's, you know, when you've got a coach that knows exactly what happened on the bench and doesn't need a video that's a strength, but now you can look at everything you can, you can review everything, And if you think about things now, when a player plays the game, now he watches his own shifts during the game. He takes an iPad home and watches it at night, usually before he goes to bed. A lot of guys do. And then you're watching it with the coach in the morning. So by the time you're approaching that player, he's seen himself play at least three times and so the the dialogue and the feel part of it is out you know that it's gone and 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 I thought that the coaches that had the great feel on the bench and the great wisdom on the bench they they were exceptional coaches but you've lost that element now because everything can be replayed and you can see everything and um, I, I I I would like it to go back it's not going to but I I've always felt that the more feel part of it, the better you're going to
0: be. So many questions. So I'm going to try and get through all this stuff. Okay. I want to switch to the Olympics quickly if I can. And you were part, you've been a part of the coaching staff for 02, 06, 10, 14. I think that's all of them. Um, was there one that had more pressure than the others was Vancouver that one or was it 02 in salt Lake? Uh,
2: I, I can work backwards on that. I, I felt, um, um, my responsibility there started, uh, I was responsibility for the game plan, for the tactics, uh, and then the post-game review. I felt after the second game in 2014, in Sochi, no one was gonna beat us. We were so dialed in as a group, the players that had returned from 2010 were so dialed in, the team was coaching itself, and we needed to just guide it in the right direction. I felt that it was over after two games. In 2010, I don't think I felt more pressure on a daily basis, just walking to the rink uh, and having to go through the gauntlet of fans, um, to tr- trying to go out and have a dinner and having people come up. I've never felt that type of, of pressure in my life. And, and that's having coached in cup finals and everywhere. That was the, the strongest the one team that won the gold medal was that, that wasn't the best team at the start by a mile was the O2 team. And mm-hmm. it was so banged up. And it was, you know, the decision that we made as a staff not to practice, not to leave the, uh, the athletes village, to just stay there and not go anywhere was the best decision we ever made because some of our older players like Lemieux, and Iserman and McGinnis and Blake and those guys, they got healthy as the tournament went on, healthier. And uh, that was the one where you, that was the most, the biggest growth I saw on the team was that one, because we were very poor at the start and really banged up. And then we started uh, really after the Czech game, which was a 3-3 tie, we just got better on a daily basis. And and we did it by by video and by review, no practicing.
0: Did How did the players respond to the, Wayne Gretzky when he had his press conference about, you know, all the negativity and whatnot? Did it go through to the players or was that just more for media?
2: Uh, it, it never it – never, we were, first of all, astounded that it even came out. I would say half the team never saw it, and we didn't react um, because we were in this bubble um, – with very limited knowledge, remember that the televisions that you had, had four channels. That was it. And and no, no voices. It was live feeds. So if you wanted to watch downhill slalom, you got six hours of it, live feed, no, no, no voices. So we never heard anybody. Even if we wanted to watch a hockey game, there was no, no uh, play-by-play. So we never had a clue what was going on until Wayne said something and then it kind of dribbled in, but we're in a bubble and it, it probably ended up being a good thing, but but we were in that bubble and really didn't have any idea.
0: Will Wayne be a good uh, analyst now that he's going to join TNT for next year?
2: Well, I could tell you, he's brilliant at, at understanding exactly what took place from a team standpoint. I think where Wayne's going to really help is he's going to be able to uh, have discussions about what a coach is thinking, what a manager's thinking, and what a player's thinking. And not many people can do that. He's going to be able to do that. It's going to be a challenge because he's such a supportive guy. Mm. Um, it's going to be a challenge for him when he has to start critiquing or criticizing. Yeah. But I think he, I think he's uh, he's got he's got obviously one of the best in the world ever at a feel for the game. And he can really tell you ahead of time, what's going to happen. And I think that's where he's going to really be good is if he comes in between periods, he's going to be able to tell you intimately, what adjustments have to be made on both sides because he's got the feel for everything because he was a coach. He was a great player. He was a manager. Um, he's going to be able to give you that feel that you, that I think the fans are really going to appreciate.
1: I was just going to say, I can't imagine Hitch, I can't imagine him being even remotely critical though. I can't see that. I I, I feel like you nailed it right there. That'll be his biggest challenge was going to, because people don't want to see an apologist on TV every time. Right. So I'm assuming he's going to have to get out of his comfort zone a little bit.
2: Yeah. And I, I think, I think, he can do it in a way that is big-picture meth uh, yeah. and, and not specifically nail a player for what he did. I think there's going to be guys on there that aren't going to be afraid to do that, uh, individually criticize players. Um, but I think it's his overall insight into what is going to happen, and, and he's very astute. At, at, at the feel of the game, really, really sharp, because we spent a lot of time, because we we both worked for Edmonton, so we spent a lot of time together, uh, uh, you know, during games, or during training camps, and stuff like that, and he's got an unreal feel, and I think that's what's going to get projected here.
0: I want to switch to 2010 for one sec, uh, and you talked about the everyday pressure, so on day one, I can remember being at practice, and it's it was in the university rink, whatever. It's fairly small. And Steve Iserman is in the stands facing Doug Armstrong and he's facing all the cameras and all the cameras are now broadcasting practice live. So I'm standing next to my camera guy and Steve is having this long chat with army. And I, I'm like, I can't believe he's having this open chat in the middle of the rink. He sees our camera and he snaps and he's like, you can't record this. You've got to tell me this is illegal. You can't. And I'm like, Steve, it's like, it was that summer, I think, that he. Met, I was at his brother's wedding, and Steve and I are around the shrimp bowl having some seafood together. So I just laughed, but he was so wound. And I'm like, was he always that uptight? Like, was the staff pretty tight uh, throughout that entire tournament? Because there was just so much on the line, it seemed like. No, but,
2: you know, it's funny because
0: it's a really unique thing in the
2: Olympics. So you're all in the village together. Management is in one quadrant in the in the village and sometimes they're on the same floor as you, but they're all roomed together on one end of the room. and we're on the other end. And there was a meeting room in the middle. So every night someone would go down. And we always used to, we always used to say, We're all gonna go visit the Muppets, because they would all be hanging over, and, and you would have you'd have to have this discussion. And you had we would go sometimes one or two of us or three of us. Would go and you'd present what happened during the day and they were so dialed in and and so helpful on little things and it's funny a guy like steve Eiserman, for me the best advice i've ever got from a manager in a big game was when he said to us um early in the tournament he said don't wind the guys up too much Let the emotion of the event take care of itself. He said, I learned that in Detroit. He said, the emotion of the event is going to raise your level enough. Let everything else be calm. And it was really helpful for us. So we were very methodical in our approach to game planning. And we let the emotion of the event take care of it. And both Mike and I really took that to heart because it was great advice. And that's the feel stuff that the managers would be able to, uh, to have with you but you had to go and present every night to the Muppets and and uh, and you better make sure you had the answers because they they were asking tough questions
0: does Steve Eisenman know he was called a Muppet we we joked about it you know
2: like it was every you know they'd be having a couple of glasses of wine and and then it was like okay we're drawing straws who gets to go tonight and uh but it, it, it became fun for us but but you weren't going to get fluffball questions they they would and they never missed anything if it was a practice day and guys didn't have a good practice they wanted to know why and they were asking there was lots at stake for everyone and uh and they weren't afraid to ask tough questions and you better be prepared for the answers.
0: Uh, Last question on the Olympics then. What was the celebration like for you guys after 2010? Do you just sit around and have a couple beers or glasses of wine? Or was there a little bit more emotion from all of you stoic individuals?
2: Well, that's the funny part. Because in all of them, um, first of all, in 02, Wayne Fleming and I had to do a presentation. We had to walk across the parking lot because the people that were working for for uh, for Canadian television, um, they couldn't be in the sur- in, on, on in the venue, so we had to go outside the venue. By the time we got to the party after doing all the camera work, there was nobody left at the party. We're the only people there. There was a bunch <laughs> of food, food, and then about thirty people. The one in 2010 is unbelievable because we we went from. Uh, the locker room, which was, you know, joyous. And, and then, uh, it was really late. So everybody, everybody had to leave the next morning and I had a 6 AM flight. So I'm up at 4 AM. I'm in a, I'm in a cab going to the airport and the people are all over the street going crazy. And I'm leaving the facility <laughs> to go back to work. And it's, it was a strange feeling because it was the same. Um, and in 2014 which was really interesting was we won the gold medal and we all went back to the athletes village and at the end of the olympics the athletes from every sport get together and have a party before they fly out well our game if you remember was always nine o'clock at night uh, social time and we ended up we we ended up back at the facility at two thirty in the morning and we had we ever had to be at the bus at four thirty in the morning because the oh. bus was to the charter. So we were—we had a couple of players slung over our shoulders and <laughs> strapped into the seat. <laughs> all we needed to do was just get them on that damn plane, and we got everybody on the plane.
0: That is outstanding. Uh, okay, so I—I want to move on, but it's kind of tied to the Olympics. And that is your relationship with Lindy Ruff. So, can you explain this all to me uh, and go back and try to tell the viewers about? How many times your career has intersected with Lindy Ruffs and the two of you sharing a dorm room at the Olympics?
2: Well, he's a a great friend, but he's a terrible roommate. He's a terrible, (laughs) because he snores. So what I had to do for both Olympics, I learned a great lesson. I gathered up all the extra running shoes, all the extra shoes, because you're given all kinds of stuff by Nike and i would have sometimes eight nine pair not pairs but eight or nine running shoes at my bed and lindy would be there would be a, a dresser drawers that were between us and they, when he got on his back he snorted like a son of a bitch so i would just <laughs> airball these running shoes on top of him <laughs> and then he'd stop that he'd, he'd move over and it was it was sometimes he'd wake up in the morning he have eight eight, eight, nine running. She was over by I wonder what the hell.
1: <laughs> um that is awesome. He
2: he is uh I mean, we've obviously coached in the Santa Cup finals against each other, and then we were together for those Olympics, but he's a guy that, you know, we're both Alberta guys, both Northern Alberta guys, and he's got a great northern Alberta sense of humor, great storyteller, and loyal as hell. And I, I loved working with him, but Jesus Christ, he snored a lot. And (laughs) we had, we had to deal with that, but he, he was, he was a lot of fun to be around.
0: Uh, One quote I found from Lindy Ruff was there were philosophical arguments and I learned a lot. I learned actually at the end to like him. Yeah. Well, we, it's funny because we, we see the
2: game. It's the same game, but we see it differently. And I guess uh, the best way to describe it is Lindy's a big believer in full court press and all kinds of pressure. And I'm a big believer in what's called point pressure and where, where the puck gets turned over and where you counterattack. So we have a lot of discussions on, on different philosophies and both work based on personnel. And he, when, when we were coaching against each other, he had a really quick team that could get on you quick. And I had an older team that was, had a lot of hockey savvy. So we had a different style, but, um, we're both students, but our belief system at that time was a lot different.
0: You coached against him again, uh, you were with Philadelphia another time in the playoffs, you replaced him in Dallas. Was that awkward? Um, not so much for
2: me because I was felt like I was going back home to try to help the situation. Um, it didn't really feel awkward. You know, we didn't really have any discussions if I think it would have been really awkward if it would have happened during the year. Um, but Lindy and I talked about it. He told me some, you know, he went over the players with me. He was really, really helpful in getting me to understand who was there and what was there and stuff like that. It, but I, I, I found, I knew Todd McClellan really well. And when I replaced Todd, after 12 games or so in Edmonton, I, I felt that was really awkward because I, I knew him, and he was a good friend, and I, I felt bad. And uh, I, I found that that was really, for me, really,
1: really awkward. Hedge, what was the issue? So, I mean, we already are I – mean, there's no secret. We know what the issues were, I think, for the most part, as fans. But, like, you being in that room there in Edmonton, what was going on there? What was the issue? With, with the Oilers? Yeah.
2: Um, I think, you know, with us right now um, we're learning how to win um, and these are hard lessons for us. Uh, And and what I mean by that is that where we're at right now as an organization is we have two immensely talented players. And I think we've got a third in Darnell Nurse. I think yeah, Nurse.
1: I agree. I totally. Darnell.
2: Darnell is a special player. Yeah. But I think what we're doing is we're in that process of really w- learning to understand what it's like. There's a difference, Mark, between playing with each other and for each other. Yeah. And we're in the process of learning how hard it is to play for each other. And Um, these are hard lessons that unfortunately most teams have to learn. Um, if you, if you learn it early in your career, it's like gold, you could save it forever, but we're in the middle of learning that lesson, how delicate it is. And, and, um, you know, I think we're getting better. I think we're getting, we're getting closer, but it's a team that really wants to do well. It's got great leadership, those young players. Um, but we're, we're learning the fine line, which is a really hard, hard lesson. Like I give like Winnipeg surprised me, um, because I, I saw the game they brought forward in the playoffs. I saw it earlier in the year, but it left them. And yeah. then it came back and And you got to give Winnipeg a lot of credit. They really played for each other in a big way. And, and uh, that was, the, to me, the fine line. It's a very fine line, right, this time of year. But they, they really played for each other. And that's the lesson that we're really having to learn.
1: So that, that's, that's great insight. So would that be, in your opinion, and maybe you can't speak on this, I don't know if you can, but the issue that's happening in Toronto right now, we know they kind of choked and it didn't work out well. Everyone's trying to find reasons and answers. Is that sort of the same kind of thing where they're trying to figure out how to play for, you know, for each other?
2: Well, I think Matt, the one thing that gets beat here, like and I, I don't like it when your top players get beat up. Like I don't like I don't like hearing what's going on with Marner and Matthews. Yeah. That's easy. Easy to knock down guys because they happen not to score. Yeah. I think if you more if you look at what championship teams have, what championship teams have are zero maintenance players beneath the top guard. And that's what wins. So you take a look at a team like Tampa, they made a significant change last year by bringing in Goodrow and Coleman. But those players have, there's zero maintenance. You never, they give you the same game every night. So there's no energy spent on worrying whether your role players are actually going to play their role. And I think that's what playoffs are about, is that in most cases, the top end saws off. You know, the, they're, they're they're no worse and they're no better. They're just, they end up sawing off because the other team is focused. Now, can your role players come through for you? Can they yep. kill a penalty at the right time? Can they get, can they, can they, can they forecheck and create momentum for your big guys? Can they get, score a big goal when they're not expected to? Can those things happen to help your team come through? And I think too much gets made of the top guys, whether they get points or whether they don't get points, there's more to a team than the top guy. Mm. So I'll give you an example. Like when you hear people say, well, we lost the game because player X took a bad penalty. I look at it a different way, a championship team, they get that penalty killed. They feel like they owe it to that guy. They get that penalty killed. That's the difference. The difference is, you pick up each other in a big, big way. And some teams have it and you it's like gold and you can see it. And some teams are still trying to learn that part of it. And I, I think that's the difference. And I, I don't know all the details that went on in Toronto, but yeah. I, I really believe that way too much gets made of, of, of top players because scoring is going to come and go, but playing for each other, is a lot different than playing with each other.
0: Okay. I want to do, uh, some, uh, word association with one particular player's name. And I want just to see your reaction. Martin Havlat. Uh, <laughs> immensely
2: talented guy, but really, um, different and different in that, um, uh, like I've seen Martin at every stage. So I saw him in the NHL and I saw what a hero he was because we played exhibition games in the Czech Republic. And Marty Havlat was a hero in the Czech Republic. And he was a guy that it didn't matter what you said to him or what you did to him, he was either dialed in or out. And it was all based on how he felt physically. And when he didn't feel right physically physically, he didn't perform when he felt good physically, he was the best player on the ice. And, and you, you just had to ride that out.
0: And, and of course the reason I bring that up is because of 2004, the ultimate brawl, that set the NHL penalty minute record. I'm still upset because I was on my honeymoon that particular day and read about it in some kiosk in a Mexican <laughs> resort. And I, and like Michael Whalen almost got into, it, I think with Tim Panaccio in front of Mike uh, in front of Jacques Martin, um, the whole thing predicated on the stick swinging incident, like the game before with Mark Reckey And you said afterwards about someday someone's going to make him eat his lunch. Did you yeah. have any idea the next game was going to turn out the way it did? No, you know, what happened in the next game was, you know, it kind of moved on, but what
2: happened in the next game was that. Um, we were winning handily and Sammy Kapanen got ran over Um, I, I'm not sure who, who did it, but he got ran over big time and our bench was really pissed off. And I looked over at jock's bench and he was missing two players. And after the first fight, after the whistle took place, I thought to myself, I got two more players. I'm running your goddamn bench (laughs) shows. And so I, you know, I was so mad at him because Sammy was hurt. And I thought I'm running this bench out. I'm gonna be standing there and it's gonna be me and two players, and Jacques's gonna be there by himself. And that was the focus. And it probably wasn't politically correct to do that, but that was the whole focus. We want I was. I was willing to go right to the end where he had nobody left and I had two extra guys.
0: Well, he almost was because I think at the end you had two players on your bench or three and he had two or three. Like yeah. have you can you explain that? particular scene of ha- i've never seen it of course you'll probably never see it again of nobody's on the bench well i
2: got a first view at what shinny looks like because i had two extra <laughs> pairs I, I we lost sammy so i had two and he had one and we played there there was still some five on five hockey that had to get played and the puck never left the neutral zone it just went around and around and around and around and, around, and it, it was it was terrible hockey to watch Nobody had energy energy to enter the offensive or defensive zone. So it just, they countered, gave it to us. We countered, gave it to them. It looked like a hockey drill, to be honest with you. And, and then I'm standing there and it was the loneliest feeling. I got, I got these two guys beside me and they're changing. And then guys wanted to change. And I said, no, you got to stay out there. And, and it was a very, very strange feeling. And, it, you know, Jacques and I, uh, we laughed about it later. Uh, because we were together in 06 too and um, but I was I was mad because Sammy got really he got hammered big time and and uh, you know the game was kind of over and like I said I I could count at that time I could still count and I was trying to run him right out of
0: (laughs) players. who was more mad you or Bobby Clark who tried to get at Jacques Martin after the game Clark he's the wrong guy to piss
2: off. I he his eyeballs start bouncing and it's a scary situation. I've seen him a few times. Once when he was mad at the refs and it cost us all a bunch of money. And then the when he was mad at Jock, he was really upset. And you know, I've seen him mad a few times and he's the wrong man you want to get mad at.
0: Did did you say anything to the players after that game in the room? I, I what was the atmosphere like in the room after? There was no players left because <laughs> we had we had
2: guys that were getting stitched up we had guys that had ice bags we had one guy that had his his top he was his eye was swollen and we, we didn't have anybody in the locker room I walked in the locker room and there was there was about 10 reporters and there was like three players everybody was everybody was in the medical room it was, medical room was packed but there was nobody in the locker room and we the the players all the players talked about was they 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 saw it back in junior hockey they thought they'd never see it in the NHL, but they saw it back
0: at Rock. Uh, and last, <laughs> qu- what did the re- did the refs come over and say anything like like this is enough, or did they just like okay, let's go? No, one guy
2: suggested to me he said you and Jacques should get figure it out because he said we're getting tired of breaking up fights. So he said, why don't you and Jock go at it and we'll just leave you alone? <laughs>
0: <laughs> would have been so good. I would have taken uh. you. Um, finally, I. I Did you and Lindy Ruff ever discuss 1999 after 1999 and the famous Brett Hall goal? Briefly once. I said, it's a goal.
2: He said, you're full of shit. It's not a goal. And that was it. We never talked about it after that. And, uh, and I knew he, I was set in my ways and he was set in his ways. And, you know, we had our own argument he had his own argument and we just kind of moved on but it's funny because in a lot of nhl finals you sure remember who wins but you don't remember who lost but nobody forgets that we won and buffalo lost because of that incident and that's that's what it is in the nhl but um you know it it was a a high water mark for the dallas stars organization and and tough for Lindy, but the interesting part guys for me was that we were so banged up and we were much the better team at the start of the series. And we had gone through two really tough series, especially one against Colorado. And we had sent some of our black aces home uh, before we got on the plane to go to Buffalo for game six. And Bob was phoning the players to come back because we were going to have a tough time fielding a team of NHL players because we had barely enough to play. And then we had lost four guys during the game. And uh, we wouldn't have been able to field an NHL team. We would have had at least six American League players playing in game seven for us. So it was really wow. fortunate that we won in game six. Wow
0: so what's the ending like in that particular situation where you, if I'm not mistaken, you guys don't know right away. No, we, we didn't even know there was a kerfuffle Uh,
2: about an, about 45 minutes later. We, we had heard that there was there, we, we had celebrated gone to the ice or gone off the ice and gone into the Buffalo locker room and um, in Buffalo there. And we, we never knew anything was going on and we, we'd heard stuff, but we didn't really pay any attention to it. The interesting part for me was that the game ended at one thirty, and um, we were we were in that locker room uh, just talking and you know celebrating or whatever. But just we didn't want to. We, nobody wanted to leave the locker room, and and the cleaning people came at five forty five in the morning, and they got really upset with. It. We left because the cleaning people told us to get out. We we would have been there for another three or four hours and. Because I remember uh, we got back to Dallas. It was like 10 in the morning. And, uh, but we were in that locker room for four hours uh, talking and celebrating. And it was such a tight group of players. No, nobody wanted to leave. Everybody wanted that moment to stay with us forever.
0: Wow. Okay, so you never got back to a cup final after. You coached uh, one just before that and lost in the final the year before you won. And So, uh, no, a couple of- so we, we won in 99 and lost in 2000. Right. Mm. So, and you never were able to get back since, but you had a couple of uh, conference finals, like how hard or how tough is it to try and chase that? We always talk about the player side of things, but I'm going to assume as a coach, the hunger doesn't change either.
2: Well, I look at, I look at one team that that deserved to win the Stanley cup. And that was the '04 four Philadelphia Flyers. You know, we had, we had a lot of good teams in St. Louis, but whoever played LA or Chicago, those were tough series. The team we had in 2004 and Clarky augmented at the trade deadline by getting Malikoff, um, Markov, and Zamnoff. We were the best team in the National Hockey League in my opinion, um, and I don't think it was even close. And we hadn't gone on a big streak. We we're nine deep on defense. And by the time we were playing Game Six in Toronto in the second round, we were t- asking for hands, and it was a vote between Mark Recchi and Sammy Kaplan on who could play defense. Wow. And Sammy He's... won. Mark played. Sammy played defense in midget, and Mark played in bantam. So Sammy won out because he played later <laughs> in life. And we had lost so many defensemen that. We, Sammy, ended up playing 20-plus minutes as a defenseman, even in the series against uh, Tampa in the finals. That team, I feel terrible for that team because we, we played minus five defensemen, six at the end, and we almost still won it. We, we, we lost in game 7 to 2-1 in Tampa. But that team deserved to be a championship team. We had every quality the team was dialed in, our depth was exceptional. And then the injuries on the back end really hurt us. And where where Sammy was having to play a position that he hadn't played, he hadn't played in 15 years. He had to go back and play there. And that's just that's the way it went. But that that's the one team for me of all the teams I've coached, that's the one team that I think deserved a way better fate.
0: Did you ever turn down a job you wish you hadn't when you look back? Yes. Yes. Tell me what it is. No. (laughs) Now I'm thinking it's like the leaves
2: or the ranges. All right. this This is typical of, this is typical of coaches. When you get fired, there's a loss of confidence. And so you're not sure you're going to get hired again. And when one team's pushing and they're pushing hard, it sounds like a good deal, but two teams were pushing and one team came with an offer earlier. And I felt like if I don't take this offer, maybe the other one won't come. So I took the offer and, and it, it turned out okay. But I always wondered what the other one would be mostly because of the chance to work with some special people.
0: Hmm. I remember us talking in 2011 at the world championships and I'm pretty sure Ottawa was without a coach at the time. And I asked if you would come to Ottawa, did they ever make an offer?
2: I talked to people in Ottawa a couple of times, um, just about about you know would i be interested in stuff and i i got to tell you i coached one year in edmonton and i have never had as much fun and enjoyed and had an eye opening experience as coaching in the nhl in canada and i my whole life i coached the nhl it was in the united states and coaching in canada and the scrutiny and the microscope that you're under was a fascinating experience for me. And I I appreciated that year in Edmonton so much, guys, because it really opened my eyes into uh, what a coach's added responsibilities are in a Canadian market. And I, I really, I, I, I just, I loved it so much. I loved every day going to work. I loved the passion of the fans. Uh, I love the interest and, and how intensified everything was. And I, I I really feel lucky that I got that at the end of my career.
0: And I remember at the end, like almost, I want to say just before the end of the season, you were saying, you would always get asked, do you want to come back or whatever? And you were very vocal about, I would love to come back to Edmonton. And and were you disappointed that they chose not to bring you back after that season?
2: No, I, I, it was really hard when you changed the general manager, um, you got to change the coach. And, and in, in most cases, if you don't change it immediately, it's going to get changed in a year anyways. And Ken needed a clean slate and they needed a clean slate. And I, you know, I, I I'm really happy working with Kenny and, and the, and the group there right now, but I, I really felt like, like, uh, as much as I enjoyed it. And I thought we showed some of the, some of our star players really showed marked improvement, uh, it was a good thing to open the door for a new guy. And I I, Ken, I had a lot of, Kenny and I did a lot of work together in getting tip. Like we we really zeroed in on tip. And once the interview process started, once tip interviewed, we never went anywhere else. It stopped at tip. We were so impressed uh, with uh, what he could bring. Uh, it was just to me automatic. And I, and Ken felt the same way that, He's the guy and we don't need to look any
0: further. I have, I have all the time in the world for Dave Tippett. He's always been so good to me. And I, I think he's a fantastic coach. And finally, um, if you're sitting at home on your couch, watching a movie, what is your favorite snack? My favorite snack?
2: <laughs> um, believe it or not, it's cherries. And I'm I'm so happy because cherry season started two days ago in British Columbia. So I'm like in heaven. So for me, it's cherry. (laughs) I know it's strange, but it's, uh, it's, it's kind of the go-to food up here in BC right now It's either cherries or licorice.
1: (laughs) Nice pitch before. And and I didn't realize while usually when Wally asks that question, he wraps it up. I just had one question. The, uh, you obviously saw the the Mark Shifley hit. I just wanted to get your perspective on that because I've heard both sides. Everyone's so heated about it. What are your thoughts on that hit on Evans? I'm just curious. Like, is it suspension worthy? By the time this video is posted, I'm sure the suspension, uh, the decision will have been made. But I want to know what your kind of vantage points like.
2: Well, it's 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 a reckless play by a really good player and a really good person. And there's a price to pay for that. And I, I'm sure Mark feels badly today. Um, he was emotional in the last half of that game. It was an emotional play and there's a price that has to get paid for that uh, and and that's the way it is. I, I just there, there has to be a price to pay when you blow up players because if you're allowed to blow up players um, and there's no consequences, then we set a really dangerous precedent in our league so it It's a dangerous play by a really good player. Um, I'm sure they're going to look at his track record, which is, you know, impeccable. Uh, But, but you also got to look at the incident and that incident is a bigger picture. And the bigger picture is these things can't go unpunished or else we're, we're going to have chaos on the ice. And it's, the players are too fast, too big, too strong, Uh, and other guys are going to get hurt in a big way like there there are hits Um, I got to tell you when I watch Vegas play Colorado and and especially Boston play the Islanders there are hits that I'm just shocked that the players get up from now and
1: yeah yeah
2: fast physical game now we got to do everything we can to protect the players
1: Okay. okay
0: I'm gonna, so let me follow that up, and I'm gonna play devil's advocate. So because other people are saying, well, Evans didn't protect himself coming around the net, and Mark Shifley is taught since he's 13
1: to hit through players. And so let,
0: me add, he- let okay. me add to that.
1: Let me add to that, Wally, because you're making a really good point, and I want to add to it. Hitch, when you watch the video, Evans at no point from the neutral zone into that puck retrieval into the end zone, never once shoulder checks. And I'm not, I'm not defending the hit. The hit was very violent. And to Wally's point. Like, does does he not have to accept any responsibility there for being completely unaware of where everyone is in a one nothing in a, sorry in a one goal game with at least a minute left to go?
2: I I think you you got valid points both you but the thing that you're missing is distance traveled. Yeah, Dist- that, that's traveled. a big one. And and there was no loss of speed. There was no glide. It was full out. Uh, I, I I I if I was a player and I'm thinking like you're you're pissed off because the guy's scoring in your empty net and you're right there. And so you just keep going, but yeah. it's distance traveled and it's the precedent that gets set that if there isn't, if there is an acknowledgement of the, of distance travel and precedent, then you're going to have chaos. And, yeah. and I think you, you got to look at what's good for the league too here because obviously that hit, you're up in Canada, but that hit goes internationally. That hit has gone everywhere. It's on CNN. It's on NMSNBC. It's, it's on Fox News. It's everywhere. And so now, again, when you get something like that, everybody's watching, and we've got to do what's right for the player. And the part I was happiest about was, was Ehlers protecting him. Saw that was a really good thing. and shows you, shows you what our game's about, but I I think Mark's just got to pay the price and, and, uh, and then we all move on.
0: That's fair. Speaking of moving on, uh, we wish you all the best playing golf because we wish that we were probably playing more of it. So we were a little bit bit jealous. Uh, We can't say enough for thanking you for coming on here. And I will say uh, at the 2011 world championships, you were so good to me because we spoke, twice a day for about three straight weeks or a month. You were in the ass. You were on-
2: <laughs> I felt like I was in the Pink Panther series. You're like Cato. You're right behind me. You're right
0: there.
1: <laughs> oh, that makes me so happy.
0: I was just trying to wrap up with nice things about you. Anyway, uh, you've always been so good to me, so I appreciate you taking the time and to come on our show, and so we wish you all the best of luck, my friend. All right. You two take care. See you, Matt. Thanks, Rich. You got it. Right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, time for On the Points, brought to you by sportsinteraction.com slash Wally Mathot. Sports Interaction is Canada's odds makers. Head over to sportsinteraction.com slash today. To get down on the action, must be 19 years of age or older. All right, Math. Boston and the Islanders, which has been a phenomenal series to watch, especially game three, sorry, game four, where they had it seemed like everybody wanted to fight once again. Like you can see the agitation and anger on both sides. So it is even at two. Is this thing going to go seven?
1: Yes, I, I believe it will be. And I'd like to comment just very briefly on, can we, can we just mention very briefly and give a little bit of love <laughs> to Jean-Gabriel Peugeot and the job he's doing on Bergeron right now in the draws. Kevin Bieksa brought it up before the game the other night. And I thought it was a fantastic point. He's do, he's running a clinic right now and and on those draws and that's all puck possession so I got to get a little love to, to to Pager I still think Boston takes the series though I'm a little upset with
0: Pager because the longer he plays in the postseason the longer it takes for him to come on our show so <laughs> I need him to hurry up and decide one way or the other but I would I, if they're gonna go to the Stanley Cup final it's my pick so I'm all for them uh, they've been sure he's like. I know we don't. We talk about it all the time about how well he plays in the postseason. But if you're a teammate with a guy like that, um, you I, I, there's got to be a level of confidence when he's on the ice that you know what you're about to get when a postseason rolls around.
1: Well, not only that, but like if you're Barry Trotz, like how in love are you going to be with Pager at this point? Like a guy that you can rely on both sides of the ice on faceoffs. He's been playing very well against that top line and still producing points. I mean, that's a coach's dream. I'm going
0: to throw this out there. I probably should put this in a different topic called method takes, but sure. could John Gabriel, if they were to get to the cup final and win, I before, know where you're going. Is he a con Smythe favorite? If the Islanders make it to the cup final
1: there, I'd have to look at the numbers because the numbers are a huge indicator as far as points go. But I mean, if we're talking about team MVPs, he's got to be up there in the conversation when we're talking about the Islanders, there's no question. But again, I'd have to look at the numbers.
0: Yeah, I know. I mean, I mean, it's a long shot still, and there's lots yeah. more that can happen. But uh, speaking of stuff that can happen, Tampa, Carolina, it
1: is 3-1 Tampa. Is this series over tonight? <laughs> I think it is. I mean, Tampa's just on another level, and Carolina's been playing great hockey. we got to give them their due. They belong there right now. It isn't a fluke, and they've been getting fantastic support from their fan base. Playing in that building, it's rocking, but Tampa's just too much, and they're too deep. Like I've been watching some of these games now and the puck handling, the possession numbers, it's just it's unfair. And it's funny because Carolina posted a tweet uh, in their last game, kind of gloating about scoring those those two goals back to back within a minute or whatever. And then <laughs> and then Oops. Tampa goes on and wins the game. It's like, oh, boy, like eating their own words. So, again, I just think that the Tampa in a league of their own, especially out of the East.
0: I mean, Nikita Kucherov, and say whatever you want about all the other stuff, but has 17 points in 10 games, 12 points, I think it is, on the power play. Like, he's just so good. Uh, yeah. That team is just so dialed in. Okay, um, yeah. finally, I, I just want to go a little baseball, and that is uh, the Jays are playing, and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is getting all kinds of attention. I feel old because I covered his dad when he played for the Expos. <laughs> but I looked at it like Vlad, he's on pace right now for 52 home runs. He leads the major with majors with 18 home runs. Can he get to 50? And I'm going to throw this out there. Since 2014, there've only been, I think it's three or four, I think it's three players have hit 50 home runs in a
1: season or more. Will he hit 50? Well, if there's anybody that can do it, it's, it's Vlad's kid, right? You've got the pedigree and you always see this and it translates uh, in every sport and a prime example of with all the current players in the NHL that have that are offspring of dads that played. They just seem to have this knack, this thing that you can't teach, right? It's, this just being exposed to, 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 a high level athlete, your whole life, you almost emulate them. And then some, when you make it to that level. So, I, I mean, if there's anybody that's capable of breaking any more records, it's him.
0: That'd be interesting to see. And I covered that uh, race between Sosa and McGuire. I and mean, it was fun to watch. And I know it's a whole different world yeah. and we're talking, but it was just like watching well, guys steroids say- too. Right. Right. And so watching guys hit the home run and just to have that attention around it is, is pretty fun to watch. So, I'm, you know, I hope he does get it. It just brings a lot of so attention. Do I. And
1: he's lost a ton of weight.
0: Yeah, looks he looks good. good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, those are the picks. Now go make yours at sportsinteraction.com slash Mathot. Sports Interaction providing competitive odds on all sports. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we have a new segment called Mathot Takes... We'll explain it after this, but you're watching the Wally Mathot Show powered by Barhaven Ford. Stop by here. 555 Dealership Drive in Barhaven and check out these new BFC custom-inspired Mustangs. All right, welcome back to the Wally Mathot Show powered by Barhaven Ford. Don't forget to stop by here. And check out these Roush-inspired custom Mustangs right behind me. Okay, meth, new segment. It is called Mathot Takes. That is right. Hot takes with meth. I mean, that's what it says right here. So uh, it's presented by Faces Magazine. Of course, you can check them online at facesmag.ca. All new articles, including an article on the Ottawa Red Blacks, Alex Mateus. Okay, so Matt, what is your hot take?
1: <laughs> and I love how you mentioned, well, it's written right here. Well, yeah. clearly you wrote that, Wally. No, no, anyway, no. This is, I'm blaming Craig. This is all Okay, Craig. Okay, Craig, it's your fault. Uh, no, okay. Well, this is a new segment. This is more of an opinion today, but it's still, I guess, a take. And it's to me, it's the unfair criticism that was directed towards the Montreal Canadiens management, including coaching staff, when they weren't doing so well and limped their way into the postseason. And then even leading into that first round with with Toronto, when they were down 3-1 in the series, there's a lot of unfair finger pointing by all the armchair coaches out there. And I follow, you know, in that path, but I wasn't critiquing Montreal, but I read a lot of negative stuff. Uh, But now that I'm on the analyst side, I can see. A lot more than I did in the past. And I just thought it was, you know, guy like Dominic Ducharme, what do you expect a coach to do when you're getting underperformances from some of your players? where well, you're going to address it in the room and hopes that they're going to come back out there and do a good job, right? That's all you can really do as a coach and provide a good system. Well, they come out of that three-one, they come out of that three-one lead that Toronto had, end up winning the series. You don't really hear anybody singing their praises at this point, which I find kind of funny. And then everybody was all over Corey Perry and, and, and stall and how they were too old. They were talking about the depth that Montreal brought in and that they weren't that effective too slow. Well, guess what? Armia stall and Perry are arguably their best line right now. And one of their most protect, uh, productive lines, might I add? So for me, I just want to call out all the people, all the pundits that were all over them. And and pointing the finger, what do you say now? Montreal's done a really good job. They're up on Winnipeg. They look very good. They're playing inspired hockey. You can't blame the coaching staff. You got to give them some props. So stick taps to those guys for weathering the storm. The media can be cruel. Fans can be cruel. But I think they're coming around now.
0: Is this the right time to point out that
1: you picked Winnipeg and Toronto? I did. I did. I did. But I was singing Montreal's praises throughout the year. I think it's a, it's fair to say that Toronto choked. They should have won that first series, but they did it. And I still I wasn't blaming Dominic Ducharme for that. I thought Toronto just had way more firepower and were a deeper team. I was wrong on that one, and I can admit it. And Winnipeg and, and uh, Edmonton just based off the numbers during the regular season. Come on, I mean, McDavid was eating them alive, and then he caught a cold spell with Drysaitel in that first round. So. I could admit when I'm wrong. All
0: right. One thing you can't admit is how well you played in 2017. And it kind of reminds me a bit, and maybe I'm wrong, but you can tell me, if uh, the way that you guys played in 2017, the way Montreal is playing now, teams that weren't expected to do a whole lot in the postseason and yet sure. found a way.
1: Yeah. and And again, that's, that's something that you can't really measure from watching it on your screen, right? If you're at home and you're the armchair coach and you're trying to figure out why a team's playing poorly or doing very well, like we did in 2017, that all starts in the dressing room. And that's a chemistry thing. That's a thing that we collectively decided we would do like most teams, of course, uh, but in that final stretch, particularly, we were we were very adamant that we were gonna win as many games as humanly possible. And that we were gonna apply ourselves to that. And that was our goal. But more importantly, we were just really tight. We had a really tight group. And to me, that's the sense that I'm getting from Montreal. And you see some of the clips. I watched some little clips of them practicing, and it just seems like they're really enjoying the moment. They're having fun. They're a tight group. Those are really, really important things when you want to win. That's a recipe. That's not necessarily something I felt when I was watching Toronto, but I feel that when I'm watching Montreal. They just seem like a really tight group
0: and i mean it is fun to watch and it's always fun to cheer for the underdog, as we always like to do so everybody's hoping to see kind of maybe montreal just continue on just to see what they can do with it right and and there seems to be a collective and i maybe i'm wrong but the way that Kerry price has helped canada at olympics and at the world cup is that he is being almost cheered along by the rest of canada in a way that they want to see him maybe get to a cup final
1: yeah that's such a good point because he's He's such a likable player, right? I mean, yeah. he's quiet, doesn't, not very outspoken. He just puts his head down, works really hard, and he's a game. He's a gamer. Never really a gamer against the Ottawa Senators when we were there, but he's a fantastic goaltender. And so I'm even cheering for him at this point. I really do hope Montreal can pull through because they're fun, fun team to watch. And Carey Price has been stellar.
0: Well, I was going to say, you have no problem cheering for them because every time you face them, you beat them. So uh, I, I, that's probably <laughs> no issues for you. Uh, those are uh takes. That's right. Hot takes with meth. So uh, brought to you by Faces Magazine. Go to facesmag.com. also follow them on Twitter. Uh, they've got some great stuff. They always do a, this day in history, and it, it's always got some fun stuff. I always like to enjoy reading it. Okay, uh, let's get right to it. Trivial Trivia, uh, presented by gongshow.com. Uh, by the way, they've made these hats that one of them is meth that's wearing. Uh they are fantastic. Uh yeah, they're they're some of the best things we've got. So uh they are collector's items at the moment. We're not selling them just yet. We're gonna give them away. Um, however, today we're giving away a, uh Gong Show Sauce Kit with the question of which former NHL coach convinced Troy Mann to get into coaching. Of course, that answer was Bruce Boudreaux from the last show. Little known fact, by the way, his daughter Casey used to work for the Ottawa Senators. Um so, congrats to S. Jackson Design. Shelly will be in touch shortly to get you that uh, Gong Show Sauce Off Kit out soon. All right, now for today's trivia presented by Bone Bonesauce Sauce, bonesawsauceco.com, turning up the heat on hot sauce. Uh, here's today's question How many times have Ken Hitchcock and Lindy Ruff spoken about the 1999 Stanley Cup winning goal? Here's a hint not very many. Um, post your answer on Twitter using the wall of thought hashtag and tag Bonesaw Sasco. Contest closes on Tuesday, June 8th at midnight Eastern. Uh, before we go, today is, by the way, we're taping this on Sunday, June 6th. And of course, that is the day for D-Day. 77 years ago, our troops landed on the shores of France. And of course, it is the one uh, iconic photo, of, uh, I guess, video where you see the Canadian troops landing on the shore. Over 300 killed that day. And Uh, Our good friend, Steve Lloyd, his grandfather was on the beach that day. It is uh, something we should never forget.
1: Absolutely. And that was something I think we both agreed. We want to bring up. I I, I just, for me, I I think we just, we owe it to these people, these brave men that sacrificed, made the ultimate sacrifice so that you and I can do silly things like this, have that freedom to do what we want in a free country. And so again, it's a long time ago, but we can never forget I'm going to plan on teaching my kids, telling them all about it. Uh, I always hold it very dearly. And I'm happy you brought that up about Steve Lloyd, his grandfather. That's pretty cool.
0: And I mean, even if you go to Vimy Ridge from, you know, First World War, like these are phenomenal places. I think we should all try and respect and visit. Uh, I will tell you something people don't know about me is I was an air cadet for about three years and I marched in a lot of Battle of Britain parades. No way. I I marched in Remembrance (laughs) Day parades and I've been a part of D-Day celebrations and honoring. So uh, that's awesome. The military part is always a big thing for me. And and so I'm glad that you and I both agree on this, that this was like the largest ever military uh, engagement at, at the time in world history. And so uh, yeah. I, I, the things and the things that Canada did that day, they were told to stop. They were too far ahead of everybody else. And they seven had miles, yeah.
1: seven miles inland further than any other. Not that it was a competition by any means, but I think, oh. you know, acknowledging that and that what our troops were able to do there on Juneau beach is incredible. So thank you
0: to all the men and women who have served and continue to serve in armed forces. Uh, if you like our show, please uh, like and subscribe it on YouTube and follow along. Also, you can go to wa- shop.wallymethought.com, pick up some t-shirts and mugs. And of course, uh, we thank you for tuning in. And that, by the way, is uh, Wally Mathot powered by Barhaven Ford, for another episode. Episode 27, by the way. We will just uh, drive ourselves on out of here now.